Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to tell you about our new online course for our liturgy study program. It is called Preaching as a Sacrament. Full disclosure, this was part of a preaching conference that we put on for priests and deacons. So yes, they are the primary audience. If you're a priest and deacon, this is a really great course for you. But uh, as with all of our courses, I do firmly believe that this is content that all Catholics should know and understand. You should know what preaching is. You should know how it is sacramental. Uh, On this week's episode, we start a brand new series, What the Catechism Says on Liturgy. So this is something we've been wanting to do for a while. I know all of you out there love when we do these little series. So without further ado, episode six of season five of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. You guys asked for it, and we're here to supply it. And whoever supplies it is a liturgy guy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We're doing another series on liturgical documents, but this time we're going through the catechisms uh, discussion of the liturgy. Is that right? Did I say that right, guys? Liturgy? Yeah. Yeah. We did one on etymology. Anybody know the etymology of the word catechism? Uh, I... I can't connect the dots, but it doesn't mean like to a echo large down. gap, a large gap between two cats. <laughs> it literally means instruction by word of mouth or to instruct orally. Uh, it's sort of odd that we're using a book to do it, but uh, from kata, which means down, and then ekine, which means to sound or ring. So it literally means this ringing sound comes down and you teach. So by this, word podca- of mouth. this podcast is catechism. Absolutely. We are catechetical. Awesome. Huh. All right. All right. Chris, well, see you guys deeply. next week. Yeah. After. What, do you, uh, what do you want to say about this, Chris? You're the king of backstory. King of backstory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, um, non-related, but I'm I'm listening to this book uh, by Simon Winchester. Uh, it's called The History of Everything: The Creation of the Oxford Dictionary. You ever heard of this book? No, but someone was just talking about it recently, and it's some kind of genius plan that people yeah, came up with it, on their it's own, kind right? Of, it is kind of fascinating how they ended up writing the the first complete English language dictionary in the in the history of the world. So it's all about the backstory of that book. So, but I think the the backs this is isn't quite the same sort of backstory uh, to the catechism, all the machinations of what's happening and how this went together, which I don't really know. But I think one of the things getting into the catechism of the Catholic Church it was what promulgated by uh, John Paul II. And its drafting was overseen by future Pope Benedict XVI. Um, there, there's also, I, I thought I heard this once, but I could not find uh, where, where he said this, if in fact he did. But I heard once that John Paul II called the Code of Canon Law from 1983 and then the Catechism from, what year is the Catechism, Dennis? Uh, so 92, know, so 92 when it came out, that these were the last two documents of the Second Vatican Council. Wow. And, and 
I think that's kind of, uh, I don't know, in, insightful in that. It's, so, so, um, so it's a post-conciliar document then? Yeah, not officially in the way other ones are, but, yeah. you know, it is. But, it's to, but to contextualize it, you know, with these popes uh, being the genesis behind it, its relationship to, uh, to the Second Vatican Council, I think, is helpful, too. Mm-hmm. And I do remember some people complained at the time that, oh, we're just putting out a little memorizing thing. You know, the catechism was immature faith where you memorize words. And uh, this is not the way this catechism is formed. You know, my mom and older people would remember the Baltimore catechism, why did God make me? And back and forth. And it was very much a memorizing by rote kind of thing. This is not that, right? This is this kind of very beautiful exposition of the faith in a thorough way. And it's become the touch point for people ever since it was made. Well, the catechism says, so therefore it must be, it's been very helpful that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, speaking of the, the Baltimore catechism though, this, this I think makes a good connection. Do you remember one of those rote uh, answers was why did God make me? Yeah, to love him and know him, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> sort of. No bell for you, Dennis. Jesse, uh, why did God make you? To become like, to become him. To become like him. Because he was in a bad mood that day. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to inflict the rest of he the was world. Kind of, he was kind of bored in eternity and was like, well, let's do this. Yeah. Well, you're both kind of right. But the, the answer that it gives is to know him, love him, love and him. serve him in this, this life, life and to be and happy with him in, forever in, in the next. In the next, yeah. But this uh, little uh, threefold purpose, to know, to love, and to serve, is uh, kind of paradigmatic of um, all things Christian. And it goes all the way back to, if it's Christian, it goes back to whom? Back to Christ. And so... We've talked about this on different occasions. You know, Jesus sort of had a, a, um, oh, a threefold job description in his salvific uh, mission. So he kind of went about saving the world in three unique yet um, indivisible ways. Remember what those are? Priest, prophet, and king? No. Priest, prophet, and king. Ooh. Well, for our purposes, let's call him prophet, priest, and king. This okay. will make sense here. So he has to reveal the word to the world, right? The prophet's job. The he prophet. is the word, the perfect word. Yeah. And that has to do with knowledge. Yeah. So your oh, job to know is him. to know. Yeah. Okay. okay. And what about the uh, priestly? Uh, remember these called the Munera Christi? Yeah. You have to have yeah. domain, his dominion, his uh, kingly dominion. Uh, that's the third one. Oh, right? sorry. So yeah. Sorry. One. I was on the. Say more about the priestly. The priest is a sacrifice. Right. right. And what is the nature? Pleading. Yeah. It's the sursum corda. It's the uh, anaphora, the, the bringing back what? What is it that God wants you to send over that paschal bridge back into his altar on high in the side? Your, your, your love. Your love. Your love. Your love. Yeah. Okay. So you were called him to, to know, love him. To love him. And that has to do with the uh, oh, uh, oh, I see what you're doing. You're having another man, intellectual man crush on you. <laughs> and then the, uh, the kingly, what's the kingly munus about? What's a good king do? Brings Sir. justice, gathers the tribes, and brings justice. Okay, but he's uh, also, what does he do for his people? He serves so them. Good, he lays serves down his them. life. Right. Yeah, the bad king or the tyrant makes the people serve the king, but the good king is the servant of the people. And so um, our job is to 
you know, live out these prophetic, priestly, and kingly munera, which is another way of saying to know, to love, and to serve. Jesse, I give you permission to serve me in your kingly role. Oh, you're so kind. I am, indeed. <laughs> and so this, uh, as I say, this um, shows up all over the place. So even in, um, we talked about this before, there's three, uh, this right, there's three kisses at Mass. The priest kisses the book of the gospels. That's the kind of the prophetic mm-hmm. kiss to Christ, the prophet. He kisses the, the altar, altar, the, the, the priestly kiss of Christ, the priest. And then there's this, peace? this kiss of peace. Yeah. Where you are kind of, uh, you know, wishing peace in your, uh, your service to, to others mm-hmm. or, uh, in RCIA, you know, the RCIA forms people to be prophets, priests, and kings. So you have this cate- this period of catechesis, which is the prophetic. You have this period of purification and enlightenment, which is about prayer and the priestly office. And then you have this final period of mystagogy, which is about kind of learning to live with others. So it's all over the place. I have to tell a quick kiss joke story. <laughs> you mean the band? No. So I was uh, traveling to Disney World with my uh, in-laws and, and, and my family. And so everybody was sleeping in the back of the van. And my mother-in-law was in the front seat kind of telling me the directions and everything. So she would say, <laughs> okay, we go here. And now we go here. There's a city down there called Kissimmee. And there's a Kissimmee. Oh, yeah. And Kissimmee, so, so, we, so we get to this intersection and I say, okay, what's next to my mother-in-law? And she says, it says Kissimmee. And I said, no, thank you. I'm already married to your daughter. And uh, we, we, we both laughed, but nobody else heard that joke. And it was kind of awkward for the rest of the family. They're like, what's so funny? And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to repeat that. Kind of a special me, bonding moment with your mother. <laughs> okay. Um, so if you were to look at the catechism, how would you guess it would be divvied up? Into those three categories. Into those three. You're mostly right, Jesse. So, well, no, the first part, aren't there four the parts? There's four parts, yeah. So what's the, the fourth moon of Christ here, Chris? The, that's right. The, uh, they would call it the four pillars. That's the another dancing. Sort of, that's the where you should have this. But the, the part one is about the priestly office. It's about the, the creed, the doctrines of the faith, the truths of the faith, the contents of the faith. Part two, which is what we're going to start, to, which we have started talking about today, is about the priestly munus, the priestly action, the liturgy oh, wait, and the wait, The first one you said was about the priestly office. Did you mean the prophetic? Oh, I meant prophetic. Prophetic. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Part one, prophetic. Part two, priestly. And part three, which is on the, the moral life uh, in the world, is about kind of the, the kingly munus. Now, the fourth part of the catechism is on the Lord's Prayer. So, I don't know. The publisher may have just wanted them to put in another section. Uh, well, that probably step. applies to all of them, right? Because you have to do all. <laughs> it Every one of those things you have to pray. But I think that that's good context when you get into part two is that it's related to part one, right? Because the once you know something, then you can love it. And after you love it, then you can really serve it. So these first three sections are really intertwined together. Mm-hmm. And this part two kind of actualizes and celebrates and manifests and reveals all of those truths you learn about in section one. And then they inspire your life as you go into kind of the world, which is covered in section three. So that's kind of its relationship. So we're in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, what do they call this? Part two, the celebration of the Christian mystery. Yes. And, you know, I'm teaching this class on music and Catholic liturgy right now. And I looked up the meaning of the word celebration. Like, you know, we're back in etymology. Gosh, etymology is so, so good. Any guess on what celebration means? Celebrare in Latin is an actual infinitive. 
Hmm. We think it means, you know, have a party people, <laughs> right? It means to assemble, to honor, to assemble, to honor. So you might celebrate the life or, you know, everybody talks about Ruth Bader Ginsburg having died. You know, you celebrate her life. Um, you're assembling to honor someone. So there you go. And eventually it became associated with, you know, celebrating the rights of the church. But it's actually um, just, it means that. Get but together and honor. That, that makes such good sense because you talk about celebrating a funeral. So yeah. if you, it wouldn't make any sense to hear to hear the words celebrare or celebrate in terms of you know party time. But mm-hmm. what you're saying to to honor, to gather, to bestow honor, principally on God, uh, that makes it makes more sense. That's why you celebrate a funeral. And it may be festive or not festive, right? But it's still an assembly to mm-hmm. Okay, so we're celebrating, assembling to honor, participate in the Christian mystery. Yeah, and the Christian mystery. Let's talk about that word. Mystery. No, remember, uh, mystery came up in a recent podcast on uh, etymologies. Um, remember what that meant? Le- leading into the mystery? Well, that's what mystagogy meant. Oh, a that's right. meant leading into the Christian mystery. But what what do we mean by the Christian mystery? Is it a mystery what you people believe, you Christian? No, I always tell people if, when you see the word mystery, just put the word sacrament in there and you will know. There is something hidden, a spiritual significance hidden, but it is also revealed. And so it's a sacrament. Um, it's a kind of secret in one sense. On the other hand, it becomes knowable sacrament. Yeah, I think that's the the exact way to look at it. I mean, it's not a, God's not trying to keep secrets from us, like you know the the end of a you know a mystery story or a whodunit play or something like that. It's exactly the opposite. Well, his plan and his mind and his uh, love and you know his reasons for doing what he does is uh, maybe incomprehensible to us in many ways and certainly much larger than our finite intellects can can grasp. The whole point of sending the prophets and ultimately in sending Christ and now sending the Spirit to animate the church is to tell you what's going on in his heart. So mm-hmm. to reveal that and to scream it from uh, the mountaintops and the rooftops, but not to keep you in the dark about it. The Christian right. mystery is about this revelation. great revelation of God's plan. And participation in that plan. Yeah. So turn that one on its head. You hear mystery, think revelation, not hidden. Primarily. Yeah. You know, what is part one of the chasm called the profession of faith? It could be called the profession of the Christian mystery. Part two could be called the celebration of the Christian mystery. Part three could be called the living of the Christian mystery. But that's the kind of the core of everything. That's what I call you, Chris, the living of the Christian mystery. (laughs) The embodiment of that. All right. So that's what you call Eucharist or you, Chris? Oh, well, he's a Chris (laughs) bearer, so it's okay. If you can't remember where the catechism starts on liturgy, just think of what's that? The Norman Conquest? 1066. 1066 and all that. Yeah. Why the liturgy? That's the first question. It, before it says what, it says why. It's interesting. Why the liturgy, Chris? Yeah, this is uh, uh, these first two paragraphs, 60, 1066 and 67, I think are awesome. I mean, they all are, but it answers that very question. Why do we do the liturgy? To what end? To what purpose? What's the, the, the goal? Uh, what's the telos? of the liturgy. Why is it done? And these two paragraphs uh, tell us. Right. It says, basically, God wants his will to be done. 
At least in 1066, right? It says, The mystery of his will by giving his beloved son and the Holy Spirit for salvation of the world and the glory of his name. That's always the two ends of liturgy, right? The glorification of God and the sanctification of his people. See, and then in 1067, it says the same thing. The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. So you're about, what, three sentences into part two of the catechism, and it's answering pretty clearly the purpose, the, the, the why of the liturgy, to glorify God and to sanctify creation. But right at the end of 1066, though, it uses the phrase economy of salvation. And economy is a funny word because we think it means exclusively money. But you know, Chris, what is it? Oikos, the household. Yeah. Oikos, yeah. Right. It's the management of the household, the naming of things in the house. Eko, oikos nomos. So in other words, this is the way God wanted the, his house, the world, to be managed, right? To be uh, organized, to be given out, to be organ just put together. So he wants his love to go where it needs to go and has to go in an organized way. And the liturgy is that. Does that mean the, the, uh, when, you, when you take a home economics class, that's redundant? In a way, yeah, because the word economics is like if you said banking economics or you know money economics, that would be kind of redundant too. But you know, that, that, that's a. I'm glad you brought that up, though, Dennis. You're much older than I am, uh, so you I probably am. had a home at class in high school. <laughs> you're both way older than I am. <laughs> just, no, they don't call it home economics anymore. So I don't know if they had home economics class in uh, in your school, but yeah, that, but it was just for girls, boys. Didn't take it. <laughs> now everybody has to take. I it. went to an all guy school, so we definitely did not have that. Yeah, I don't know if they have home ec classes anymore in high schools or not. But think back, uh, if Dennis, I presume you had one. But what are the types of things you learned in home ec? Baking and sewing—that's what the girls learned back in the <laughs> sexist days of the eighties. You didn't. You didn't have to take this. No, it would, oh. the boys took shop and the girls took home ec, and that's how it is. I think nowadays people have the boys take everybody takes everything. Yeah, no, I, I was in home ec class and we learned how to balance a checkbook. No, really. There's this exercise. Yeah, this is what it's like to have a child. So you had like a goldfish or a, a or an egg that you had to keep uh, alive. And that's know? that's why you ended up having so many kids because you thought that's, it was as easy as taking care of a goldfish. Yeah, they they did. If I recall, they uh, uh, taught about uh, um, uh, contraception and other se sexual things like that. Wow! So, but that was home at class in uh, public school. Well, now I have to make this podcast explicit. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> but that's the as Dennis is saying. That's the true meaning of economics: is how to manage your household. Okay, and so God has a household as well. First, uh, I don't know, I guess you might say the household of creation and then the house of Israel and now the house of the church. And he's trying to manage it and direct it to get all the way back to himself. But again, the point in these first couple of paragraphs is why? To what end? Why is he doing what he does? And, you know, it really is a more slippery question than than it might appear. I mean, just ask the average Catholic man on the street why God does what he does. And uh, I don't know. Well, it, it's that, or he loves us, or he wants us to be with him, and things like. And those are true answers. He wants to share his love. That's true too. But to say God does what he does for his glory is not an answer that comes readily to the lips, because it makes God sound like he's some you know egomaniac mm -hmm. who's you know going about doing things just so he can be glorified. But I think you know if. If I said the reason why I do the things I do is for my own glory, 
I mean, you'd be right in saying I've got some sort of uh, ego problem, but there's a difference between God and me. God no, is God. Really? And I'm what? a creature. Wow, yeah. And everybody knows whether you thought God was the sun or God was the, the river or God was Zeus or whatever, that it's in the nature of gods. It's in the ontology, as Dennis would say, of uh-huh. a God that he be adored, praised, worshipped and glorified. Uh, and it's not in the ontology of a creature that he be so. So, yeah, the, the purpose of the liturgy is the to sort of increase the glory of God. Now, it's increased when we become sanctified. Yeah, because the glory of God is dot, dot, dot. Man, man fully alive, the sanctified right. man. So if you if you really are serious about adoring God, the best way you can go about that is to become a saint. Yeah, let's take a, an absurd example and say like there's some football movie. You know, there's always some football movie where the team is demoralized and they're no good and the new coach comes in and he turns around their dispiritedness and, you know, then they become like a team that works together and they like play the football. Little Giants with uh, Ed O'Neill and Rick Moranis. Yeah, what's the one with the, the hockey, the Mighty Ducks? You know, there's always that. That's kind of a story. Oh, so yeah. the, in a sense, you know, the coach is glorified because – comes in and he does this great work. But on the other hand, these players are actually glorified too because they're actually living more fully the life of teamwork and all that. So take that to the infinite level of God. He's got this perfect existence being itself at the highest level and he wants us to share in it. How do you get that to us? I guess he could show up and shoot us all with lightning bolts, but that's not really how he likes to work. He wants us to be invited. He wants us to say yes. He wants it to be slow. And then a kind of apprenticeship to his majesty and the liturgy is the way you do that. Yeah, that's a good analogy. I I haven't thought of that one before. The one that I sometimes use is like the, the, the wealthy man, the rich man who becomes even richer when he gives his money away. Versus uh, the rich man becomes a miser and kind of keeps it all to himself, actually becomes poor. So God becomes in, sort of increases his glory by sharing it uh, amongst his uh, amongst his creatures. And that's how his glory is increased. And so, How can God's glory be increased? Isn't he infinite in all these things already? Yeah. No, that's, 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 that's that is one of the hidden mysteries, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> how, can, how can the perfect be made more glorified? Yeah, well, it's by by spreading it out and sharing it with others. I think that's a, that's what we'll see in the first part of the catechism anyway. Well, because I love etymology, I looked up glory, etymologically glory. And it has a funny uh, rela- relationship to the word known, like gnosis, um, that you become more knowable, you become more known. So the more the truth of you is known, the more that God shares his reality with us, the more we know the truth of his love for us. And so the more he shares it, the more he is known, knowable. So I like it. And therefore beautiful, right? Mm. All right. Well, we've gotten mm. through two paragraphs. And I think that's about all that we can do today. Um, <laughs> this is just bringing back happy memories of going through Sacrosanic and Chilean, even though you were not happy about that. Uh, <laughs> you, but that was such a good series. And I think you guys said that you want to go through um, the general instruction of the Roman Missal. So hopefully we'll do that at some point. But this is this is amazing. I kind of it's kind of uh we should have been doing this earlier. We should have gone through this, I think. But Well, you know. I had that moment of genius where I said, hey, let's do this. That's true. <laughs> that actually, credit, credit to Dennis uh, again here. I feel glorified. Do well, you feel let's, sanctified? <laughs> let's be more sanctified by answering a liturgy, liturgy question. What do you think, Chris? Let's do it. Oh, <laughs> always yeah. oh, always yeah. so excited to answer liturgy questions. All right.
So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Just me. Just me, do you have a question? Yes. Well, you already knew the answer to that question. <laughs> Wait, Jesse, do we have a question? <laughs> that, yes, that's the answer. I want to know the question. The question is... Will you just read the question? Uh, this is a remember, good time for the John McEnroe drop. Do, yeah. <laughs> do you remember when we made fun of Chris because he didn't know the answer to one of the questions and we did a uh, schoolhouse uh Chris Chant. doesn't know the answer, <laughs> but he does know the answer this time. Yeah. You know, okay. Those scars don't go away easily. I okay. know, I know. We're sorry, Chris. What's the question? Ever since the Aiden Nichols event of Ought 14. Do you know, uh, actually, as you mentioned that, I was reading Aiden Nichols uh, while we were waiting to uh, come on the podcast. So he wrote this book called Conciliar Octet. Have you come across Ooh. it, Dennis? No. Concise commentary on the eight key texts of the Second Vatican Council. How Ignatius. I think a couple of years ago. Anyway, I was reading the one on Sacrosanctum Concilium. So would that be a, a tale of eight documents? Could be. Thoroughly okay. informed by the liturgy guys' commentary. Anyway, Jesse, do we have a question? Jesse. <laughs> we do have Ask a question. The question. This question comes from Matthew Walton. He says, Dear Liturgy Guys, it is allowable. He just goes right to the point. No, nothing like I love you guys. He just like right into the question. We love you anyway. Yeah, we do love you anyway. It is allowable. Is it allowable for an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion to fracture the host when assisting in the distribution of Holy Communion? He no. said uh, he found the encyclical Redemptress Sacramentum, which says only the priest may, but he found other churches or dioceses allowing it. Well, like there's a be a question to follow up. Does he mean like if you're if you're an extraordinary minister and you're running out of hosts and you have to break them in half to make sure everybody gets one? Or does he mean participate in the fraction rite of the mass itself? I would assume that it's the former because um, I can't envision a scenario where an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion would need to participate in the fracture rite, especially since they're not even in the sanctuary at that point. It used to be the case back when uh, it was allowable to use uh, flagons, which is a fancy word for a pitcher, that extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion would come and pour the precious blood into ancillary chalices. But So that's a form of fractioning, I suppose, as well. Um, but no, that's I didn't think to look in Redemptionis Sacramentum, but uh, here's what it says. Here's some other sources that, as you would imagine, are consistent with that. In the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it says at number 162, uh, if priests are not present and there are a large number of communicants, the priest may call upon extraordinary ministers to assist him. That is duly instituted acolytes or even other members uh, who have been uh, duly deputed for this purpose. Uh, these ministers should not approach the altar before the priest has received communion. So that's uh, one source that would suggest no. Here's another one. This comes from 
a U.S. document that's in the beginning of the Roman Missal called Holy Norms for the Distribution and Reception of Holy Communion under both kinds in the Dioceses of the United States of America. And it says, oh, come on. Ah, yes. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. Chris doesn't know the document. Chris can't find the paragraph. He's in rare form today, folks. So, so I Jesse, heard this joke uh, about yeah. this guy who was golfing and he had to wear two pairs of pants because he got a hole in one. Ba-dum-bum. <laughs> Should I keep where going? Where do you go if, where do you, go if you get hurt playing peekaboo? Uh, I don't know. To the ICU. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally saw that one on Facebook. Hey, so I Dennis, I do, you know, yeah. do you know the zip code to Beverly Hills? Don't tell me, Jesse. You know the show Beverly Hills? 90210? Yeah. Do you know the zip code to Dawson's Creek? No, I don't. 90108. <laughs> For my life to be over. I know what okay. okay, I think I found it. I okay. Found it. No more joke telling. Jesse's back. <clears throat> I think Chris number 37. Uh, as the Agnus Day is uh, begun, the priest alone or with the assistance of a deacon, and if necessary, can celebrating priests breaks the Eucharistic bread, period. So you have priest or deacon are the only ones allowed to help with the fraction rate. Okay, so, so. If, if they're distributing as a EMHC is distributing, are they allowed to fracture it? No, to provide out. more hosts for people if there's a multitude in the line. And there's no oh, more. Oh, yeah. So if you have one host left and you have two people yes. coming, can you break it in half? Yes, I think you can. Okay. So the distinction here is there's the right at the end of mass, the fraction right, and then there's providing enough hosts for other people, and those are two distinct yeah. things. Or how about this? If you're a, if you're an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, you bring communion to the sick, and a person can only receive a very small portion of the host. Can you break off a little bit? And yeah, you can do that too. So that's a type of fraction as well that would be permitted. Permissible. Yeah. So it seems to me the idea is here, the fraction rite is a particular thing. It signifies the breaking, Christ breaking of the bread. It's the sacramental action. It's the breaking of his body that's done by the priest, sacramentalizing the Christ's own action. Then distributing communion to somebody else is kind of a different thing, say, ontologically. And it would be uh, permissible there, but not as part of the rite of the church as the church sees it. Is that right, Chris? I agree. All right. All right, Matthew, I hope that answers your question. And if you want to ask a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at. We are so smart. S-M-R-T. <laughs> what, what is your Twitter what? handle? Oh, uh, DMAX Super Taster. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Semicolon, taste more than you do. Exclamation point, asterisk. Okay. There's a lot of irony in that uh, right there. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.